How's everybody doing? I'm coming at you with a late night stream. Militant Thomas at night. So I wanted to go over briefly a bit of a section from a manual of Catholic apologetics. And I'll put the link to it. If you're a patron, which some of you are, a good bit of you are actually, then you can find a PDF that I'm going to be going off of right now and find it in the patron. I uploaded the PDF. So go ahead and check that out. If not, um, paperbacks only like 10 bucks. So, or if you're fancy and want a hardcover, it's 20. So you can pick that right up in the link I'm about to send. There you go. Boom. Okay. So we're going to be going over the necessity of religion. This is an interesting natural argument that I read in here. And I thought it was interesting enough to share with you guys. Because this is definitely a really good um, book that doesn't suck. You know, most of the modern apologetic books you're going to read are done in a very bad way. They aren't good. But this is somebody who is a manualist. So they're using the scholastic method and they're applying it to apologetics. So it produces something of a much greater quality than what you're going to get in most of these um, modern books. Just don't read anything after like 1960. I think that's a good cutoff date. Don't read anything after 1950. 60. I just said 60. Uh, specifically 1962, if you know what happens then. So let's begin. So first he's going to get over the the value of religion, then he's going to get over the the necessity of religion. I think this is a really good section because um, it provides more, I guess you could say inductive arguments. What it's, what it's doing is you have something that people desire, such as um, unity, well, truth, goodness, beauty, and unity. Those, those are things people desire. And then it is showing how, happiness, uh, pleasure, desire, stuff, stuff like that, things that people seek and shows how the fullness of that is found in the Catholic church. So that's the, probably the most effective way of arguing. That's always the way that I've done things. Um, and that's, that's the patristic way of, of argumentation. When you go to, uh, Tertullian, for example, I think, I don't know if I shared that or I wrote, I wrote an article a while back. Um, it was originally an essay that I wrote about the apologetic method of Tertullian, um, found in his in his work against the pagans, his Apologia. Um, I did a work based on that, which shows the method of argumentation which Tertullian uses, and this is pretty universal in the Fathers. The way that they did apologetics is much different than the way people do apologetics now. What they would do is they would play off of the natural desires that people have. They would play off of that natural sort of um, sense of justice, which flowers into a uh, sense of justice towards God, which is known as religion. And they would show how this is um, 
that show this is perfected when it comes to the Catholic faith, that the Catholic faith is really the fullness of everything in which they desire. And um, yeah, that is, that is how he's going to argue, which is a billion times better. Have you had the chance to read Logos Rising? I have not. Sorry about that, King. No comments, because I've not read it. Or I could just just be like all your other uh, your other online Catholic apologists and just comment left and right on stuff I haven't read. That, that's how I feel when I when I see these guys commenting on uh, on Calvin or Luther, and and they say stuff or on the Reformed or Lutheran tradition broadly speaking. I'll see them comment on stuff. I'm like, you haven't read that, have you? There there's no way in which you 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 can claim to have a a solid um, and systematic view of somebody else's positions on certain matters and say the, the really silly and uninformed things that you say. But uh, yeah, that's just my brief rant. Okay, now actually getting into what we're supposed to be getting into. Oh wait, before that, become a patron at patreon.com slash militant Um And yeah, that's all I'll plug you guys with for my ad. I won't Spend five minutes. Okay, so religion is of the utmost importance to the individual. So he's going to get over individual and then communal goods in which religion fulfills. So first, it connects man with God, his origin and final end. So this is kind of a twofold um, argumentation. This is pretty classic when it comes to uh, the scholastic tradition as as a, as a whole. When it comes to the um, prime cause and then also the final cause, of man because we come from God and go back to God, kind of that um, Neoplatonic idea of procession and return. This is, if you read, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas's um, Compendium Theologiae, that's where he, sta- that's where he starts, is that uh, Christ took upon himself our littleness, that we may be called back to him. So it's, it's, it's that same idea that um, religion is of a necessity for the individual, because being called back to where we have flowed from is a necessity. So second, it satisfies the noblest cravings of man's virtue, that is his desire for truth, goodness, and happiness. So um, this is this is also a a few scholastic dictums right here when it when it comes to anthropology, that nobody, no matter who you have, Nobody desires to be deceived. Nobody desires to. Um, nobody desires falsehood. Nobody desires, at least explicitly. Uh, that's what I mean. Explicitly, nobody desires any of these things. Nobody wants to know what is false. People desire truth, and then that noblest craving of man's nature, of well, at least man's intellect, that is truth, that is only fulfilled in. Um, truth ipsum subsistence truth uh subsisting in itself which is god that every truth that exists is only true insofar as it subsists in god so again we're we're still going back to that sort of tertullian way of argumentation where we are um, saying oh you want to know truth well i in in the catholic faith we have truth itself subsistent truth 
And it's the same way with goodness when it comes to the aptitude faculties or known as the desires. We desire of necessity, the good, and then therefore we desire happiness, which is the um, happiness is really, how do I put this? It is the, so you have the knowledge of the truth and then you have the attainment of that truth. And it's kind of the the mixing together of the intellectual and the um, aptitude faculties, the intellect and the desires. And it's known as resting in the good. That is what happiness is. Everybody really desires to be happy. Even people who are depressed and uh, let's say, God forbid, they commit suicide. That is um, in a very twisted way a means of attaining happiness. Everybody desires that. And we can show through natural reason. And this actually would be something interesting to make a whole video because Thomas has a huge section on this, both in the Summa Contra Gentiles and in the Summa Theologiae. And this is a huge uh, unexplored section of his theology is that all men desire happiness, but every example that we have of created happiness and even uh, some ideas people have of uncreated happiness will not fulfill that desire. And then there's the scholastic dictum that um, a desire which is placed in us will not be left unfulfilled or will not, like for example, if we desire to drink water, we're, we're thirsty, water is going to exist. In the same way, if we desire to be happy, so also will eternal and unchangeable happiness exist, which is found in the beatific vision. But get on that that's that's a little bit later down the line so three it supplies him with a firm foundation for moral action this is another thing especially uh when it comes to modern apologetics with dealing with um, the culture that we've been given is people are very interested in uh, their conception or certain conceptions of moral action that is something that people place a a lot of um, emphasis on is uh, being a, a moral person. And obviously they have a twisted view of that, but that desire can be, can be played upon. And in showing them uh, what is the most fulfilling and it's the only uh, internally and externally consistent form of, um, of ethical action, which is found in the Catholic faith, uh, we can play off of that desire in order to show them that if they're going to be consistent with having this desire for moral action, that they will become Catholics. Okay, and then right down here, the little little comment that he has. True religion teaches that God is the source of truth, that his will is the rule of all moral actions, and that peace in and with God is true happiness. It directs man in his efforts to attain what is good and preserves him from doubt and error. Religion raises man above irrational creatures and perfects and completes his nature. Okay, and then uh, on the flip side, on the flip side, religion is also of the greatest importance to human society. And that's going to be um, something which is really unexplored, I would say, um, especially since uh, after the, the Leonine era, of uh, Catholic social teaching, because now we have a very um, twisted and individualistic view of religion. But religion as a societal good 
is something which also is uh, is can be shown forth uh, in its necessity. Original Wind Productions, no chill stream. We had a chill stream earlier, but I'm I'm being uh, um, no. <laughs> we had a chill stream earlier. Is just a uh, patron only chill stream. Hi Elijah. Hi, what's up? Okay, so religion is the greatest importance to human society. First, it ennobles the relationship between man and man by teaching that all men are brothers and the children of the same fathers. Second, it elevates human... So, actually, I'll consider to, continue to consider the first one. So, when it comes to um, mutual relations... Um, the way in which a, a non-religious or atheistic point of view would be towards the relations of men is that foundationally and consistently, if you're going to be consistent, that there really are no um, obligations between men. Because, I mean, what, what obligations does really one man have to another? It, it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense that these obligations would exist. But when it comes to the fatherhood of God, there is a uh, there is an, a, an accounting. You can have an account, a rational account, for why there should be this cohesion and ennobling of the relationships between man rather than a merely a pragmatic view of why man relates with man. So second, it elevates family life. So again, you, you see this a lot in, in atheistic societies, and especially in our own particular um, hellish form of atheistic society that we're in, which is really just uh, not really atheist, it's, it's more religiously secular. Um, that that's particular hellish form we're uh, suffering through. It's... And uh, especially when it comes to communistic forms, there is a deafening and downplaying when it comes to family life. Family life is not seen as something which is which is a good, which is of necessity, which is foundational to the the larger scope of society. But when it comes to religion, it does elevate the family life. And then he comments down here. The family is the foundation of society and of the state. Without religion, men could not endure the trials and sacrifices required by a permanent and well-regulated family life. Where religion is discarded, family life decays. This is definitely true. Because, I mean, like thinking of it myself is, uh, I think he's almost seven months old. I had a, um, well, my wife gave birth to my son seven months ago. That is not easy. There, there's a lot of trials and sacrifices that have to be made in order to make sure an infant doesn't die and to take care of them and to um, get up in the middle of the night and stuff like that to, to not be able to do stuff you normally would be able to, to take them along everywhere to make sure they're okay and, and so on and so forth to have your wife stay home so she can nurture your, your child while you're at work. Stuff like that, that is that is a great sacrifice and a great trial. And without um, without this 
consistent accounting for why this trial happened. Because I mean, in a in a generally uh, non-religious view of the way in which societies work, it would be absolute madness if you were going to be merely pragmatic and self-seeking and individualistic. It would be madness to have a family. So it it really does. It really is interesting just uh, contemplating this for a bit. It really is interesting that that we have seen this this huge decay of family life and the sort of anti-natalist movements against uh, against children, the anti-marriage movement, and so on and so forth. These movements have arisen because people are being consistent with this. They've recognized that having a family is a huge sacrifice, that it is not fun, it involves a lot of trials, and since they are merely um, individualistically pragmatic, when it comes to their own uh, wants and their own desires and their own pleasures, then they have completely abandoned the family life. This also brings to bear um, contraception, um, abortion, that that those are both anti-familial uh, actions. Their popularity, even among so-called Christian circles, that just shows that the the hatred for the family life, even in so-called Catholic circles, um, even though that's not the official teaching of the church, that shows that this has infected all parts. This um, practical secularism has infected all parts because people do not want the sacrifice. People do not want trials. It's hard. It's it's hard. It's difficult. Having more than, uh, what is it, 1.7 kids or 2.2 or something like that. I can't even remember the average number of kids. And a declining birth rate like that is absolutely uh, damning when it comes to a society. We're seeing that with, with our own in the West, where people just aren't having kids anymore because they are non-religious. They don't want to go through sacrifices and trials for a greater good. That is the good of, of family life and the good of society in general. So that is really what we're seeing. And I'm going to check the chat, make sure I keep up with that. And making lunch for you. Yes. Even though I'm a night, I'm a night worker, so it's a bit... It's a bit odd for me because she doesn't really make lunch for me. She kind of makes like midnight snack for me, which is usually just trail mix. I'm really weird. I eat the same thing every day, like for every meal. Super weird. I'm just consistent like that. I'm like Emmanuel Kant, take my walk at the literal same time every single day and have people uh, base their clocks off of me because of how consistent I am. That's me, but with... How is the night shift? Are you going nuts? Uh, no. I mean, the night shift isn't bad because once you, once you get adjusted to the sleep schedule, which is like I basically sleep from like it's probably seven thirty to like two in the afternoon. That's about when I'll sleep. It's not terrible because I mean I'm tired at like five, six, seven o'clock in the morning, but I'm not really tired the rest of the day. And since I've adjusted, it's not. It's not horrible. I mean, the pay is a lot better, obviously, because you get all those bonuses from you, they give an increased pay if you're a night shift worker. 
So that's, that's really nice. <laughs> it's like the, the first time in, in, uh, since Lexi and I got married that you just make too much money. That's super, super weird. So that those aspects of it are good. I mean, it's kind of, kind of weird. Um, not having the same schedule as everybody else, which I really despise, but nobody bothers me during the night. So I get to like last night, I, I was, I have a app where I can listen to books on and I listened through like seven hours of Gary Gou Lagrange. That's all I listened to last night. And it was great. And I can also listen to like YouTube videos and stuff, but nobody bothers me. So I just sit around and, and stock, just stock the same stuff every night. It's kind of mindless, but it pays well and I can listen to stuff. So after that brief aside, Okay, so it secures respect for duty and law, which obviously when it comes to, uh, and we also see this, you know, this is this is kind of weird because this was written in like the 19th century. This is this is a bit eerie because it's almost every single one of one of these things are being um, slowly eroded in the secularism. <gasps> Sorry, although I'm tired. This is like noon for me. In the secularism of, of our age, this is all being slowly eroded. Respect for duty and law, like we see, um, especially I think since it's been thoroughly and probably uh, the end of its, the, the final fruition is our age group. I'm assuming most of, I'm saying our, because I'm assuming most of us are uh, generally of the same age group. When it comes to us, this has kind of reached its end. Is that there really is no idea of duty? Like, for example, if I don't know, Russia—I uh, probably shouldn't say that word. I'll get—I'll get kicked off. If Lithuania decides to bomb New York tomorrow, and the uh, the draft happens for some reason, because I guess Lithuania has has a very good military, and a lot of people in my age group get drafted to to go and fight Lithuania. A lot of people wouldn't feel that same duty towards fatherland, towards family, toward and such. That same duty to to defend and to protect uh, out of charity. And this duty is is not inculcated in a secular mindset. Because, I mean, especially in its individualistic form, you're not going to really have any duty to anybody besides yourself. I mean, you'd have a duty to, I guess you could say, a pseudo-duty to self-defense, to uh, to save yourself, save your own skin. But you wouldn't really have a duty to, to anybody else. And it's the same thing with law. I mean, if you don't have the idea that in a certain sense, in a... Uh, in a restricted sense, that your leaders are divinely appointed and that you are obliged to um, obey them in all things lawful. Like if Joe Biden makes, decides to, I don't know, put the speed limit at 50 miles an hour on the highway, although that would be dumb, I still have a certain obligation to obey him. Um, I, would, I would have that obligation to obedience. But this isn't really seen in a in a secularist mindset because 
really the the leaders aren't um, divinely appointed in the same way or in a way at all divinely appointed. They really uh, it's more of a practical obedience that happens. Like I think murder and and theft and such are really icky. So I'm just not going to murder or steal because I think they're icky. But when it comes to, I don't know, um, what's a good example? Underage drinking or, uh, I don't know, uh, shooting up heroin or something like that. That is not, if, if you just don't find that icky, then, then go for it even though um, it's against the law. And though that's, again, very, very much vital for the, um, the bringing together and the sustaining of a certain society is that there's a duty towards um, your superiors and towards your fellow man. And there's also a duty to obey when it comes to the promulgation of the law course only valid promulgations of the law okay man 80 you are are up right now you guys are crazy okay so i'm going to read the thing religion represents laws as the expression of a higher will and makes them binding on the conscience in every age legislators and philosophers have borne witness to this fact cicero writes it seems probable that when fear of God vanishes, all good faith and social order among human race among the human race perishes. Exactly, this has to do with social order. You can't really have order without hierarchy, and you can't account for the hierarchy without um, religion. So, Saint Augustine, if justice is destroyed, what are kingdoms but great robberies? So again, that that is it's kind of ironic. There's a sort of like anarcho capitalist sort of way of thinking and this is exactly in line with it that is that is in a sense the the end of of secularism it would be anarcho-capitalism because what you are saying is that since there's no divine appointment when it comes to societal order that when the when the um hierarchs of society are for example taxing when, when you get taxed, that would just be really a great robbery. It would just be the more powerful stealing money from the less powerful rather than having any sort of um, right, a, a right that the state has to impose taxes within um, legitimate bounds that they have this right. We have the obligation to pay them. Okay, Brother Land of Nod. When you talk of duty, if you live in a country that hates you, do you have a duty to defend it? The country I grew up in and thrived because of no longer exists. Do I still owe my life to the land? If you live in a country that hates you, Oh, I get what, I get what you're saying. Uh, I would say yes, because when it comes to the um, the virtue of patriotism, which is which is a Catholic virtue, not to be 
um, confused with a more uh, jingoistic sort of way of going about things. When it comes to the virtue of patriotism, um, it really is an obligation to the land and the people and not necessarily um, to whatever uh, state leader might be up there. Like, for example, if tomorrow uh, America decides to be a little bit more explicit and wants to execute Catholics or something like that. I, I don't I don't have that same obligation to uh, the obligation that I have to my to my fellow countrymen and to the the land that is America generally speaking I still have the same obligation that doesn't change but when it comes to the shifting and changing leaders of that land obviously there's going to be a differing in in obligation it it's not it wouldn't be unpatriotic to say like be gone tyrant that that wouldn't that wouldn't be necessarily unpatriotic so i hope that helps okay authorities might be piled up indefinitely to illustrate the consensus that prevails as to the necessity of religion for a practical observance of morality george washington uttered the following beautiful words of all the dispositions and habits which leads to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert those great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect the national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. It is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. And then four, it promotes the temporal welfare of nations. And I guess you could say that this is true in a twofold sense. In one sense, there is a certain, um, temporal prosperity which comes with the uh, with a certain society holding the catholic faith from god and then second i mean just practically speaking people who are who are catholics are better workers or at least should be better workers if they were consistent with their principles because there is that same relationship of duty obligation and right that we have with our employers that we would have with a leader uh governmental leaders and, and, and stuff like that there is an obligation that i have to my employer to do good work because um they fulfill an obligation to me in, in paying me so all industrial progress depends upon security of life and property which only religion can declare sacred and thus effectively protect the higher the standard of civilization the greater are the demands made upon each individual for a conscientious discharge of his obligations. This is obvious, for instance, in the case of factories and railways. A workman's personal interest is not enough to secure the performance of difficult and arduous tasks unless his sense of duty is reinforced by religious motives. And again, this is a self-evident principle. And that kind of, this also briefly, kind of changes the way in which you view work, is its, its sanctified work. 
for the building of the kingdom of God and also based upon certain obligations that you have. So it really does uh, put a little bit more of a spring in your step. Then five, this one is going to be the one that triggers the libs, so to speak. Triggers triggers the most sciences or the follow the science or, or such. It encourages intellectual progress. So this is this is going to be absolute just rage. You're going to be going against this one. So all the early literary productions and legends of civilized nations bear the impress of religion, which was the chief inspiration of science, literature, and art. The history of the nations of antiquity is to a great extent religious history. And religion has never ceased to exert a great influence on national life as a whole. Goethe remarks that the chief and most profound theme of history to which all others are subordinate is the conflict between unbelief and belief all epochs in which faith prevailed were brilliant full of inspiration and fruitful and lasting works but on the other hand all epochs in which unbelief triumphed though they may have possessed a temporary luster vanished and made no permanent mark upon posterity and i hope to god that that is that is our generation that it makes no permanent mark upon posterity according to the evidence of history whenever religion has been at a low ebb social political and economic decay has resulted invariably though not always immediately downfall of the civilized nations of antiquity the french revolution based modern anarchism i love how he includes the french revolution as among the downfalls of the civilized nations of antiquity. You got, in descending order, you got the fall of the Roman Empire, and then second, the French Revolution. This French Revolution was really bad. If you read um, the way in which the popes of the time talked about it, like it was, it was pretty terrible. Because France used to be a very faithful daughter of the church, and then now she just ain't. And there's kind of two ways in which we could uh, think about and I guess I'll stop sharing my screen because this is just my own reflections. I guess there's kind of, oh, I should go to the middle of the screen. There's two ways of thinking about um, the necessity of religion and the benefit of religion when it comes to intellectual progress. So first, uh, internally, when it comes, well, I guess in regard to first principles, there you have a uh, valid accounting for first principles. Um, you're able to uh, substantiate first principles when it comes to uh, basing them upon God. You're able to to do that, to have a consistent view of the working of nature and, and stuff like that. You're able to you're able to do that. Yeah, sorry, I don't know why I'm yawning so much. And then also regarding um, the order of the sciences is that when it comes to the the christian or the the catholic worldview and the way in which it views the relationship of faith and reason the way in which it uh, views the relationship between empirical sciences and then intellectual sciences and then i guess you could say uh, sciences of faith which is theology 
When it comes to the relationship between these, it's able to have both something which is ordered, um, consistent, and then also um, interrelated, that you're building this massive cathedral that is uh, human knowledge rather than all of these little um, office cubby holes sort of desk, like little cubicles. That's that's the way in which the modern university places knowledge is into these little cubicles that are unrelated. When it comes to the Catholic worldview, there's able to be this integration of the uh, various species of science that are present throughout, like physics and biology, theology and philosophy, metaphysics and sociology. You're you're able to have um, within the Catholic worldview the all of these have their various relations because of their common source and their common end. You're able to, uh, you're able to give a ordering, which is, which mutually benefits each one of the sciences, because when you have this, these little cubicles of thought, it, it never really works out at all. Um, It just leaves the disaster that we have in, in the modern university system, rather than the, the based uh, sort of medieval way of doing science and of law and of uh, theology and of philosophy and of, and of everything like that. It, it was the way in which the universities used to work much better than the way in which it works now, but that's kind of beside the point. Okay. Uh, I will send that link again real quick, just in case you were wondering, that is a manual of Catholic apologetics. Very wonderful. Absolutely love it. It It's basically the whole thing is like that. Just providing um, in, in the larger font, it provides a number of arguments for each one. And then below it gives a little bit more detail and then proofs of each of what it is saying. So it's basically done just in the same exact way in which a manual is done. But it, it's able to provide a, a very generous scope of how to deal with various apologetic questions. So that's all I have for you. Thank you. And do actually, it's still technically Sunday. So God bless. Lord.